Welcome again to Journey Church. Glad to see so many of you out. It was a little, uh, I don't know, everybody's driving from different places and different distances. It was a little bit sketchy driving in this morning for us. But we made it. We weren't one of the, one of the four vehicles in the ditch on the way here. Just, you gotta just know how fast to drive. And, and here's just a little word of advice. I have four-wheel drive. It doesn't make any difference on the ice. It just doesn't make any difference. So, but anyways, I'm glad to see you guys all here. I'm Aaron Poor, the associate pastor here at uh, Journey Church. Pastor Sean and his family, in fact, his whole family, anyone with the last name of Phillips, is, uh, is, they're gone celebrating Thanksgiving uh, this weekend all together. And so I'm here preaching, and uh, Pastor Sean asked me to preach, and a lot of times when he asks me to preach, we are in the middle of a series, as we are now. We're in the Seeds series. But sometimes, um, God, I really believe God will give me a, a single message, and, uh, and that's what's happened today. And a lot of times, the way that happens, and uh, I, don't, I can't explain this, I don't know why it works this way, a lot of times that will happen while I'm sitting out here listening to Pastor Sean preach. But it'll be about something completely different than what he's preaching about. And uh, it's just such a strange thing, but it happens so many times that way. And it happened this way a couple months ago. I was leading worship, and we were doing that song, uh, Knowing You. You, you. you know, we've done that a couple times. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you. And so as we, as we wrapped up worship and sat down and Pastor Sean got up and started speaking, I just couldn't get the words of that song out of my mind. And I kept thinking about what they were really saying. And I kept thinking about the chapter in the Bible that that song is taken from, because it's almost word for word taken from Philippians 3. And I was thinking about these words. Let me read you just the first verse of this song. It says, all I once held dear, built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I've counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're the best, you're my joy, my righteousness, and I love you, Lord. And I got to thinking about that, and I was thinking about what that was really saying. You know, because kind of a, a running joke that has gone on for so many years is that, you know, and it's, it's, they, it's a joke, but it's really not very funny, but it's that Christians don't tell lies, they just sing them. And the reason that joke came about is because the songs we sing are so extreme, right? I mean, we make statements that are so extreme and, and so over the top, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all, and we sing it, but then what percentage of us live it or do it? And so we, 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 kind, of, we kind of build this reputation of being a people that sing bold extreme things that we don't really mean. And so it got me thinking about 
you know, this probably seems so extreme to some people, uh, especially in the culture that we live today, to sing the words of this song. And so it pulled me back into the actual passage in the Bible, Philippians 3. Because ultimately, if I'm going to make an extreme statement, I want it to be scripture, not just somebody's song lyrics, right? And so let me read you a little bit of Philippians 3. The question is, does this actually say everything is worthless compared to knowing Jesus? Is that what the Bible actually says? Everything's worthless compared to knowing Jesus. So let's read Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For this sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could, could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness uh, through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. I love what Paul says next. I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. I love that Paul uses that language because he makes it very clear that this is a process. Because a lot of times where guilt and condemnation comes in is, are we all the way there? Are we 100%? No, we're not. We're in a process. But that's what Paul's talking about. Verse 13, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies behead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling me. So Paul sets this crazy high bar in this chapter. I mean, he says, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so I could gain Christ. Well, if we were to just take at face value what Paul is saying, he's saying everything is like nothing to me compared to knowing and, and pursuing and serving Jesus. So Philippians 3 uses such an intense language and call to follow Jesus that it almost feels like it's only for like the superheroes of faith. It's, it's, it's only for like these really well-known men and women of God down through the years. And, and all the rest of us have to settle for something else. It's like we can look at it like it's up on a lofty mountain somewhere and we live down here in the valley and we can talk about those people that live like that. But it's like we all kind of know, yeah, but that's not us. But the, the title of this message today is Philippians 3 for you and me. 
And because I want to be able to show you that this is something that God has made possible for anyone who chooses to follow Jesus. And I'm preaching to you what I have preached to myself hundreds of times. Because I have felt this way hundreds of times. Uh, Because I grew up with this really, really extreme radical desire to want to know Jesus, to be on fire for God. You know, I mean, anybody that grew up and went to church and youth group and all that stuff, you, you know the language, right? But I, I want us to see how this is possible, even though Paul uses intense language and sets a very high bar. Jesus sets a high bar. It's not just Paul. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. So I grew up on a steady diet of this kind of language. I remember one song (laughs) that I I listened to as as a kid. Uh, and and I, I still, the words are still etched in my brain. It, and in this, the words said, to obey is better than sacrifice. I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights. Because if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. And those were the types of, that was the type of language and, 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 and verbiage that was kind of bouncing around in my brain. And it set this high bar. And, you know, I could get, it took me a long time to realize, and this is such an important thing to realize, it took me a long time to realize that being really fired up about something is not the same thing as doing something. Just because you get convicted doesn't mean that you've actually done anything yet. Conviction is what draws you and calls you to change, but it is not in and of itself the change, right? So you can come to church and you can hear Pastor Sean preach on something like the root of bitterness. And in that moment, your heart can be stirred and and those words can ring true to you. But that conviction is not the change that needs to happen that conviction calls you to change, right? There's still a moment where you make a choice and you take a step. Anyways, it took me a while to realize that just being stirred up about something doesn't mean that anything changed. So there is this life that we are called to live in the Bible. There's this picture of what following Jesus looks like in the Bible. And then there is the life that most of us actually live. And a lot of times, for lots of people, there's a discrepancy there. Our hearts get excited about living on fire for Jesus, fired up, extreme, and our souls get discouraged when we fall short. And I, I want us to. I want us to be able to see where the disconnect is. And I want us to be able to answer the question, and this is just kind of a rhetorical question because you already know the answer, but 
when we think about those two, like the thing we hope for versus the, what we're living right now, we might ask ourselves the question, has God called us to do something that's not possible? Would God call us through the letters of Paul or through the words of Jesus to a life that we can't really even live? Would he do that? No, he wouldn't, just in case you're really wondering about it. But here's the thing. I believe that there is a wrong assumption that most Christians have to, uh, that creates a barrier between where they are and where they need to be in living for God. When this issue comes up, and it could be on, it doesn't have to be Philippians 3. It could be something that Pastor Sean preached three weeks ago. It could be anything that involves making a change in your life to be more like Jesus. There can be a part of you that gets convicted and stirred up to want to do that, and then another part of you that feels discouraged because it doesn't feel like you can do that. And I believe that there's a misconception or a wrong assumption that we have that actually creates a barrier and keeps us from stepping into that life. So if we can clear up that misunderstanding, we can open up the way to follow Jesus that is actually doable, achievable, and within reach for everyone. But we have to be, start off and just kind of be honest and be willing to admit that the Bible does seem to call us to a level of commitment that is foreign to most people's way of life. We have to kind of start there and just be honest and say, okay, yeah, this is where we are. Most people are here. And the Bible, Jesus, is calling us to something here. And so, you know, what do we need to do? Paul uses words like discarding everything else, counting it as garbage. Jesus uses words like give up your own way, take up your cross. So this is where I believe two false assumptions enter the conversation and create a barrier. And it holds many believers back from knowing and following God. So we need to remove that barrier today. Does that sound like a good plan? What are the false assumptions? Okay. One assumption is this. And let's kind of keep this in the context of what Paul is saying in Philippians 3, all right? Paul's, remember, Paul's like, I am pressing on to knowing Jesus, and I am counting everything else as just trash. You, you get this almost this image and this picture in your mind of Paul just like taking all of his stuff and putting it out at the end of his driveway for the trash guy to come pick up. And he's just like, I just, I don't want any of it anymore. I just want to know Jesus. And so when you hear Paul's words, one assumption that you have is in order to do that, I have to step in to some kind of a monastic lifestyle. What do I mean by that? Like, sell all your stuff. Go live in a monastery so that all you do all day long is read your Bible and pray and worship, and you dedicate every minute of your life to a spiritual pursuit of God. 
One assumption is that's what Paul's saying, and he's basically saying, if I'm not doing that, I'm not following Jesus. The other assumption, and this is most people, the other assumption is when you really sit down and you really hear those words and read those words that Paul preached, you come to the conclusion that, well, I know I can't do that. So what I need to do is I just need to be sure that I'm giving more of my time, more of my energy, more of my life to God than I am now. So if I could take that part of my life that is focused on God and just increase it, then that's what I need to do to become a more serious follower of Jesus, to live like God, uh, to represent Jesus to the world, all of this. That's the other assumption. And they're both wrong. Neither one of them is right. You've heard of a false dichotomy, right? Some people call it a false dilemma. It's this idea that whatever the case may be, there are only two options. You only have two options. Like if I were to say that this, if I were to give you a scenario where I said, okay, there's an emergency in this building. The building's on fire. And you only have two ways out of this room. You can go into that lobby or you can go into that lobby through those two doors. That would be presenting you with a false dichotomy because there are, in, in actuality, there are five exits to this room. Two in the back wall and one over here. And those three exits that I failed to mention to you and give you as choices actually lead straight out of the building. They're emergency exits designed just for that situation. And so a false dichotomy is a problem if neither one of the choices are good choices. Because then what it does is it puts you in a position where you have to choose the lesser of two evils. Has anyone ever voted in a national election? <laughs> it's true. So we have option A, which is pursuing God to the abandonment of everything else in life. And we have option B, which is trying to do a better job of fitting God in to my life. Those are our two options. That's our false dichotomy today. And I'm talking to people who really want to know Jesus and be more like him, but are having a hard time finding a balance in life. So imagine it like this. I have a couple of illustrations. Imagine it like this. Imagine that the floor is your life. This is where all your stuff is. Important stuff. This is where you, you, you are parenting your kids. This is where your spouse is. This is where your job is, down here. This is where your hobbies are, your recreation, fitness, taking care of yourself. It's all down here. And then up here on the stage, this is where God is. This is where you come to meet him. This is where you seek God, your devotion time, your time reading the Bible, your time praying and listening, worshiping. These are the two places. And it, it's, let me go to my other illustration here. I've got two. We're just coming out of Thanksgiving. So I'm using the pie chart 
on a couple Thanksgiving plates. Praise God, it's empty. And uh, imagine this is your life right here, right? So I've got kids, fitness, recreation, spouse, job, hobby, God. And this guy right here, he's a spiritual guy because God is the big pie piece, right? So this is somebody that's like, they've got their life, right? Yeah, I mean, the God gets the big piece. But this is wrong. But this is also wrong. Here's the other guy. Wow, this guy is really spiritual. I mean, it's all God. It's nothing but God, prayer, worship. But where's all the other stuff? I mean, what did Paul really mean when he said, I count everything else as garbage? What did he mean by that? Because the tension is this. Depending on what this person's hobbies are, I don't know what the answer to that is. Probably all this other stuff came from God. Do you think, I mean, is, is God saying your spouse is garbage or your kids are garbage or quit your job because no Christians work? No, he's not saying that. So where's the tension there? Or there is the tension there. So we, we have this, this problem here of which one is right. So it feels like I have to choose between being down here, where all my stuff is, where my life is, where my wife is, my job, or coming up here where God is. And I told you a few minutes ago, I've preached this to myself many times, many times. I mean, we have a, we have a prayer cabin that we built in our backyard. And... There was a time that I just wanted to be out in the prayer cabin. Because, I mean, I was connecting with God. I was having encounters with God. I was reading the Bible and getting a lot out of it. My prayer life was getting richer and deeper. But all of the stuff over here was losing more and more and more of my attention and focus. And so then I'm like, okay... I guess I have to come down from here and go back down here and spend some time down here and take care of this stuff for a while before I can go back up there again. And see, here's the problem. When we try to go from here to here to here and we try to find a balance, we start walking like this. And it's not comfortable and it's not normal. And eventually we get tired of that and we just end up down here. That's what happens with most people. And then Saturday night or Sunday morning comes around, and we come up here. And we sing for 30 minutes. We shake hands with people. We drink coffee. We hear a good sermon. And then we go back down here. But this is not how God designed your life to be. It wasn't ever supposed to be these two things. So... How do we rectify this? 
If option A is trying to fit God into your predetermined, pre-existing life, and it's not the right answer, and if option B is pursuing God to the abandonment of all these things that God put in your life. Because you know, if God put these things in your life, you have a responsibility to God to take care of these things. You have a responsibility to take care of your body. You have a responsibility to love your wife or your husband. So the question is, how do we make this work? Well, why can't we start pulling things from down here up here? Why can't we do that? Why did that thought never enter our mind? Now, I, I don't get too far ahead of me. Because there may be people listening right now or even watching on YouTube later on, who are already saying, but that's what I do. I already do that. And, and maybe you do. But I'm going to give you a, a way to test that here in just a few minutes. So let's go back to this idea. My marriage should be up here, not down there. My marriage should be up here. My wife shouldn't be down there. My wife should be up here. Going back to my prayer cabin, um, Sarah and I started just recently, to be honest with you, we started going out to the prayer cabin together. And that was a little bit of a stretch for me, to be honest with you. And here I am, helping pastor a church. I've preached sermons on marriage and done marriage counseling and all this stuff. And it was a little bit of a stretch for me to bring my wife into that space that for so long I had designated for me and God alone. But this is a fundamental shift in thinking because it's not choosing time with God or time with my wife it was me choosing time with God with my wife. And for me, that was a, that was a new mindset. How about, how about things like your gifts and your talents? There was a certain time where, you know, I could take my guitar over here. And there was a certain time when my guitar lived down here. And my time with God and my life with God lived up here. There was a moment where I had to come before God and say, look, Lord, I want to follow you and I want to know you. And I don't want anything in my life to be an idol. I, I don't even want it to be a distraction. And so there was a point where I said, I will never, ever play another note of music if that's what I need to do to follow you. And the interesting thing is, when I brought that gift up here, 
What do you think happened to that gift? It exploded. All of a sudden, I used it more. All of a sudden, it had purpose. It had significance. It went from being like 75% hobby to 75 to 85% serving God. But it had to be submitted and surrendered to God. Now, let me go back to the idea of marriage. And the idea of that coming from down here to up here. And I want to talk to you just for a second about a man of God, an author, a pastor, who has been one of the primary, like outside of the Bible, one of the biggest voices that has fueled my fire for wanting to know Jesus. But as I read some things here, there's a very sobering truth that emerges from this guy's life. So I'm talking about A.W. Tozier. And you've heard me, if you've heard me preach before, chances are you've heard me quote from some of his books, probably The Pursuit of God. And he built a legacy that inspired hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to want to know Jesus more. An amazing legacy. And he's still one of my favorite authors. I want to read you one of his prayers. He, in The Pursuit of God, he, at the end of each chapter, he writes out a prayer. And for some reason, he writes it out in like old King James style English. I don't know why he does that. But I want to read you one of these prayers to give you kind of a taste of A.W. Tozier. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I'm painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, that so I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this. That is a really good snapshot of the heart of Tozier. Another quote of his that's one of my favorite of all time. It says, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. That is so deep when you start to think about it. To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. But what I want to do is I want to read you just a little excerpt of a Tozier biography. And I want you, as I'm reading this to you, I want you to think about this idea of life down here versus life up here. And what things do we leave down here versus things that we bring up here? Listen to this. On Sunday morning, May 12, 1959, Tozier's chest pains sent him to the hospital. Ada, that's his wife, Ada spent several hours with him on Sunday, but at his insistence, she returned home that night to rest 
while he anticipated a good night's sleep before the battery of tests scheduled for Monday morning. Aiden Wilson Tozier died at 12.45 a.m. that night. He had just turned 66. Ada, his wife, was 64. Now more, than, now more alone than ever, she had little money in the bank, never having known about the family finances. Let's see here. Never having known about the family finances, she learned upon Tozier's death that he had routinely given half of his salary back to the church every month. Furthermore, he had eschewed seeking the provisions provided by the C&MA to build up a pension fund, and he had signed an agreement with Christian Publications in 1959 that relinquished his rights to royalties on the paperback editions of Pursuit of God, Root of Righteousness, and Born After Midnight, his biggest-selling books with that publisher. When she did gather what was available, she had $5,000 in life insurance and $7,000 in savings. Tozier had encouraged his wife to reach out to Leonard Odom before he passed for help. It turned out that this widower and Ada found great joy in each other's companionship and were married a year later. For 10 years, Ada and Leonard enjoyed life together. For all accounts, including her letters to friends, this second marriage brought her fulfillment, joy, and a sense of freedom she hadn't known before. During the years 1964 to 74, several people who were close to Ada inquired about her happiness. Her responses were consistent. I have never been happier in my life. Tozier loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard Odom loves me. It's difficult to imagine a more loaded statement. I praise God that a wife of decades knew that her husband loved Jesus, but it pains me that she never felt loved by him. Tozier pursued God and taught others to do the same, as well or better than anyone. And he lived up here. He lived his life up here. But it seems like, it seems like he left his wife down there. And that is not the plan of God. That's not the will of God. Now you can say, how can Jesus be everything and you still have a family? This is how. When you come to Jesus, when you give your life to Jesus, it is an act of total surrender. Total surrender. You're not saying, Jesus, be Lord over this piece or that piece. You're saying, Jesus, have it all. It's an act of total surrender. And from that place, you live your life. From that place, you live your life. I cannot do this with two hands. I'll try not to break any plates. You come to God, and this becomes your life, Jesus. And you say, what happens to all of the other parts of my life? Important things, things that God placed in my life, things that God has called me to do. 
Am I supposed to walk away from my family? Am I supposed to quit my job? Am I supposed to ignore the call of God on my life? No. Those things right here now belong on this thing. On this thing. They, they, in other words, the things that were down here, when you give your life to Jesus, you actually give him all that stuff. And it comes up here. And now you're in a place where you can do what Paul said in Philippians 3, where you said, I count everything that I, that was, I count all of this space down here as worthless. And the only thing that has value now is this up here. And so I'm going to take these important things and bring them from that worthless place to this place of infinite worth. This may seem like a subtle thing, but I don't think a lot of people do this. Now, you may be thinking, I'm already doing that. And maybe you are. Maybe you are. But I really don't think a lot of people do, especially in this culture. Because our culture that we live in is antagonistic to this type of lifestyle. So I can help you figure out in a matter of seconds if you're really doing that or if you haven't done that yet. I have a self-test for you. And the self-test is this. I can even put it up as a slide on the screen. Is anxiety or worry present anywhere in your life? What are you saying, Aaron? Are you saying Christians can't have worry? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this. Anxiety and worry are like a check engine light for your soul. It's not telling you that your life is falling apart or you're just totally blowing it or anything like that. Anxiety, fear, worry, tension, stress are check engine lights that say, hey, hold on a second. You need to take a look at that area. Because if you have an area of your life, let's just say it's a relationship. Let's just, let's just make up a hypothetical situation. Let's say you've got a relationship in your life that is causing you anxiety, worry, and stress. Chances are that that relationship is down there and not up here. And here's why. Because in order to get what's down there up here, you have two things you, you have to step through. There's two things you have to do. One is surrender and the other is trust. Surrender and trust. Surrender and trust. You're taking this thing that was down here, and the reason we like things down here is because we have control. And in order to get it up here, to use Jesus' verbiage, on the rock, in order to get it up here, we have to surrender it to him. We have to say, God, <laughs> this relationship is stressing me out. Lord, right now, 
I take this relationship and I surrender it to you. And from this point, I'm going to trust you. And I recognize, Lord, that trusting you may mean there are things I need to do. There may be things that you lead me to do in this relationship. But whatever it is that happens from this point forward, I am letting go of my death grip of control. And I'm bringing it up here. And I'm surrendering it to you. And I'm trusting you. That two-step process of surrender and trust can be done with any area of your life. So anxiety is the check engine light for your soul. And Philippians 4, the very next chapter, gives us such a simple, simple way to deal with it and to do this process. And so as we wrap up, I want to play a video real quick, and then we're going to just kind of wrap this up, and we're going to take a step ourselves to surrender and trust God with these things in our life. Let's go ahead and roll the video. Pray about everything. There are plenty of biblical passages on prayer, so there is no shortage of places to start grappling with this sacred mystery. However, It probably never gets more concise and straightforward than Paul's instructions to the church at Philippi near the end of his letter. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. One of the more frustrating aspects of Scripture is that it rarely reads like Ikea instructions. If God would just lay it out, step by step, then I'd do it. But for some reason, He's determined to speak in stories, analogies, and riddles. This passage is proof that it's not that simple. Right here, It's laid out step by step, but generally speaking, we don't follow the steps. Do not be anxious about anything, pray about everything. But most Christ followers spend far more hours turning over anxious thoughts than surrendering them in prayer. If it's right there, so plain and clear, why not take God up on such a satisfying exchange? Short answer? We don't buy it. We think, come on, it's just not that simple. As pastor of a church primarily filled with young adults in the first half of life, I get a lot more questions about managing anxiety than I get about prayer. Anxiety is the soundtrack humming beneath modern life, so I have plenty of conversations with anxious people. It's not just a diagnosis of others, though. The truth is, I'm more familiar with anxiety than I am with peace. I'm better acquainted with a subconscious drive to control the circumstances overwhelming me than with accepting the unburdening freedom promised in prayer. I'm not a master counselor on the other side of the divide who is offering you the miracle mantra. I'm right there with you. 
God promises peace, a supernatural sort of peace we can't even logically reason out, in place of crippling anxiety. The means of this exchange is prayer. But most people, regardless of spiritual maturity, stage of life, psychological awareness, or personality type, do not experience the anxiety for peace exchange promised through prayer. So why not? So the question is, according to that video, are you f more familiar with anxiety than you are with peace? Let's have the band come up, and I want to wrap this up. But I, I want to be able to have everyone here have this opportunity to bring things from down here. This is where anxiety happens, up to here. I want, I want everybody in here to have an opportunity. If you can identify a piece of this pie in your life that is still down there on the floor, I want you to be able to place it here in Christ and that anxiety for peace exchange happen in your life. It's the last verse, last scripture here I want to read you out of Matthew 11. Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. Now, don't raise your hand or say anything out loud. Just ask yourself, Am I weary? Am I carrying any heavy burdens? Jesus is talking to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you. I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When I learned what Jesus was really saying in this verse, it blew my mind. I mean, Jesus is using an agricultural analogy in this verse. He's not talking about egg yolks or anything like that. He's talking about a different kind of a yoke. He's talking about a harness that you would put on an ox Normally, that harness would be attached to a heavy load, a heavy burden, a big plow or something like that. But when you had a young, inexperienced, weak ox, the practice, the common practice would be that young ox would be harnessed or yoked to an older, stronger, knowledgeable, in other words, somebody that had an, ex, an ox that had experience, it would be harnessed to an older, stronger, experienced ox. The stronger one would pull the load. The younger one, the weaker one, its only job 
would be to be connected to the stronger one and just walk with it. That was its job. Walk with the stronger one. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you're trying to carry this heavy load. And I'm telling you, come to me. Learn from me. Take my yoke on you. I'll carry the heavy load. You walk with me. You learn from me. Jesus is saying, can you please take your stuff that's down here that you want so much to have control over and could you please put it on me and just harness yourself to me, walk with me, learn from me, surrender and trust, surrender and trust. Everybody say that with me, surrender and trust. Amen, let's stand up. Now we're gonna sing part of one last song here. And when we do this, I, I want you to actively identify a part of your life that is down here that needs to come up here. So we're gonna use our check engine light. Check engine lights should not be a scary thing. We should be thankful for check engine lights because it's telling us something we need to check out. And if you can identify a part of your life, maybe it's your health, maybe it's your finances, maybe it's a relationship, where anxiety is present, then as we sing this song, I want you to use the, the two-step process of surrender and trust and bring it from down here, up here. Let Jesus carry those burdens. Harness yourself to him and release them to him. Holy Spirit, right now, as we begin to sing, we ask that you would move through this place and identify in our hearts, our minds, and our lives any areas that we have allowed uh, anxiety in because of our intense desire to have control. And Lord, we're here to now, we're here right now, Lord God, in humility. We're ready to release these things to you, and we're ready to trust you in Jesus' name.